Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I'm about a month out from the actual exam. Uh, my exam is on May 16th, and today is April 14th, which means that it's like four weeks and some change until I'm sitting in that room. And I just feel panic all the time. I feel constantly like I'm not doing enough, that I need to be reading more, that what I'm reading, I should be reading more carefully, that my notes are shit, that I'm not reading the right books, that I'm not communicating with my advisors enough, that I've, you know, made my lists in such a way as to, you know, hamstring myself, that I'm just not doing a good job, that there is some secret out there that I do not know about that just means that when I get into that room, I will not succeed, that I will fail and everybody will know. Uh, and that is what I'm thinking a lot. And it's hard. When I take a day off or I have fun or I only read two books a day instead of three because I accidentally play Civilization VI for two hours, I feel guilty. I feel like I am not being a good student and I feel guilty for not using my time well. You know, the people around me, my friends, my family, my loved ones, my girlfriend, they're all... You know, I don't want to say suffering, but they're not getting me anymore. I'm not really a present uh, person in their lives because I'm always studying. And so those moments when I take a break, those moments when I spend 20 minutes on Facebook worrying about Donald Trump, they feel like I'm taking away time from these people. And I know, I know just as I'm saying all this, that this is normal. I'm not special in this anxiety in any way. When I've spoken with other people who are also studying for their final exams, we commiserate because we feel this same overwhelming anxiety, this same dread, and the same constant guilt that we're either not studying hard enough or when we take breaks that we are not taking breaks well enough. And we're now at the point where I wish I had less time. I wish that it was happening right now. I'm feeling burnt out. I'm feeling, yeah, I want it to be over. I'm still learning new things every day, and it's still exciting, but I, I, I want the intensity to dial down a little bit. So over the last few episodes, I've been wrestling about this idea of how to include non-humans in history and kind of trying to draw out the problems that happen when we make a history in which non-humans have really, really important roles to play. And I want to just recap two big things about that. Why we're doing this and the problems that it uh, gives rise to before we jump into the meat of the episode. So why is it important to include non-humans in uh, history, particularly the history that I'm studying of the rise of the modern or industrialized world? Well, when we want to tell a story about climate change, when we want to tell the story of modernity as one whose key conclusion is the changing of the Earth's geology, we need to invite in a whole new set of actors to do the work of history for us. We need to pay attention to things like uh, ocean uh, uh, chemistry, to uh, 
you know, the burning of fossil fuels, but also to things like how energy affects society before modernity. We have to understand that the human system that we have been studying in history for all this time is not just, you know, soldiers and statesmen and culture and society, but it's made up of animals that have, you know, needs metabolically that a lot of the struggles over history have to do with struggles over calories. And that makes history a little weird. And this gives rise to some of the problems that come when you start to include non-humans in history. One of the big ones for me is that it seems to further degrade the thing that historians call agency. It makes individuals seem tiny. It seems to make every single thing that any particular person do either the outcome of big geological factors like how much energy is available in a particular system or just to be meaningless entirely what does the decision of a particular politician matter when we are trundling into a situation where a lot of coastal cities will be underwater in a hundred years? What does the writing of a particular novel or the thoughts of a particular marginalized people matter when we might not have civilization in a hundred years? Furthermore, and perhaps more importantly, looking at things on this geological or species-wide scale seems to undercut a lot of the work of history over the past 20 years, which has looked to telling local stories about how these seemingly global processes like colonization or modernization are constantly undermined when they actually have to, you know, get instantiated in daily life. That in daily life, people do end up having agency. They are able to make the world their own. When we look at history as a geologic event, when we look at humans as, you know, on the same level as giant volcanoes, you know, spewing out carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, these political divisions don't seem to matter anymore. And that's really disturbing because if we want history to help us figure out how to make new kinds of political organizations, it seems that this species history can't. And that's really worrying because if we know anything from history it's that in the next hundred years as things start to get weird because of climate change that we're going to need to figure out ways of politics that help us understand why some people are winners and some people are losers and you know the alternatives nationalism racism uh, even, you know, war, those are really bad. We know what happens when we blame everything on people who live outside of our borders. We know what happens when we blame everything on minorities within our borders who we just think of as evil. So, including non-humans into history is necessary and troubling. I want to propose in this episode, which is going to be a little bit speculative, that including a history of organizations into a study of environmental history offers a promising solution. So first, why organizations? Well, first is the fact that much of the stuff that we're talking about in these podcasts and in my research happens within organizations. When we think of the Industrial Revolution, uh, these 
things, these processes happen within organizations. Especially after the 1850s, new kinds of technologies are researched, produced, and brought to market in capitalistic organizations that are made specifically to research and produce and bring new technologies to market. Let's think even of the early railroad. It is an organization that digs the coal out of the ground, that is you know, funded by joint stock companies, that employs workers who are working for a wage, that has to negotiate with those workers. That coal is then you know, brought via a, a railway, which is owned by another organization. The railway is made up of iron that is manufactured by an organization. Organizations provide the money to run the railroad, they hire the engineers, Years, they write the rules of the railroad, they decide who gets the profit of the railroad, and who gets the hard work. Furthermore, this is really useful because the organizations are everywhere. One of the moves that people have been trying to make in the past couple years, in British history especially, is looking at things globally, understanding these processes beyond the boundaries of the nation state. Because we know that even though historians work within nation states, history doesn't work like that. But it's hard to write global histories for the same reason why it's hard to include non-humans into history, because it gets really big and complicated and it's hard to see the individual. However, Organizations are a great lens for this because organizations often cross the boundaries of nation states quite, you know, promiscuously. Think of the place that you work and the things that you use to do that work. Your business, if you work for a business, probably has a lot of stuff to do with a lot of things outside of the borders of America. And the things that you use to work are made outside of America, wherever else you are listening from. So the organization is useful both because it is the site of a lot of the process we care about and it allows us to see these processes going on in new kinds of geographical configurations. Furthermore, organizations give us a lens at looking at both the small micro-social stuff, the individual, and the big macro-level stuff, the state. So let's start off with the state. We cannot ignore the role of the state in all of these things that are happening. The state sets the rules of the game of, of the market. The state uh, wages war and creates new kinds of political configurations that often help uh, the development of particular industries. We can see this through uh, the history of cotton that we talked about early. And also the state is an important factor in according status. We have to understand the people who are doing these things are motivated not just because they want to get money, but they want to get status. And the state is often a really important way in which people can get things that they care about, things that make them feel honored and proud. And we can see this through how organizations interface with the state, what organizations do to try to change the state and what the state does to try to limit organizations. In our railroad example, one of the really important things that the railroad has to do is it has to get the permission from the state to be able to buy up large swaths of land through other people's property without necessarily their permission to get a good straight railway running through it. This is called eminent domain. You need 
people to go in to whatever legislative body you have and make uh, members of parliament or congress people agree to this weird thing so that you can get a railway. Furthermore, the state uh, is deeply involved in the railways once they get up to speed because they have to worry about, you know, uh, making sure that people don't die on the railways. Once you get big railway accidents, the state steps in to ensure safety procedures, to make sure that third-class passengers aren't like r rolling down in uncovered boxcars, which is what they did before there was a law for it. The state is deeply involved in how things are going in these organizations. And also, looking at organizations helps us understand the individual as well. If you look at the life cycle of an individual and the life cycle of an organization, they are deeply enmeshed in one another. Organizations are like living organisms. They need to constantly reproduce the different parts of themselves to make sure that they survive. The different roles that are filled with an organization need to have people coming in and out of them at all times. And sometimes machines can fill the roles of particular people, and sometimes these roles change, but organizations are constantly having to recruit new people and train new people for new roles. And if you look at your own life, you can see how this is true by looking at how individuals are socialized by particular kinds of activities through their involvement in organizations. We are trained in ways to be, you know, generalists in our uh, schooling. In high school and college, we learn the basics of what an educated person should be. You know, basic math, basic history, basic sociology, how to make an argument, how to communicate. But then once we go into the organizations that we work in, we develop new sets of skills through our interactions in that organization. The organization is working on us to reproduce a particular set of behaviors that belong with a particular role. Then when we change roles, when we're promoted, when we move laterally within a company, when we change jobs, when we quit jobs, we undergo a similar process of training. If you have changed jobs, even if you've not changed job titles, you will see how this is true because every single time you start in a new place, you have to learn all these kinds of invisible ways of interacting with things that is how things work in that organization. And what's important about looking at how individuals and organizations uh, co-evolve with one another is understanding that both entities have agency. Both entities are able to do stuff to one another. It's not just the story of the state or of culture or of Epstein stomping on individuals and making them have no role. Instead, when we look at individuals and organizations, we can see how organizations shape individuals, but also how individuals shape the organization. And we can give an example of how all of these different things are interacting in the history of India Pale Ale. We can see through that how individuals, organizations, uh, and states all are maneuvering around one another to create different kinds of outcomes. So the India Pale Ale was originally made for the East India companies uh, around the turn of the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. It included uh, lots of hops so that it could be shipped from uh, Britain to India. And this 
was necessitated by the fact that people could not actually legally brew where the East India Company was. Uh, there was a monopoly on shipping beer. One particular person was able to get this monopoly, so this particular person, whose name I'm forgetting, uh, was able to make all of the IPA. Then, once individuals got a taste for IPA from working in the East India Company and they started to move back to Britain, they wanted to find this beer that they'd grown to love, this heavily hopped beer. And it created a domestic market for IPAs that were uh, filled by different kinds of organizations that were able to uh, exploit this new kind of niche. In the second half of the 19th century, these organizations, which I am again forgetting the names of because I didn't look over my notes before I started talking, these organizations started to develop because of increased transportation uh, reach and decreased costs of transportation information. They started to develop uh, the structure of modern integrated companies. Um, they were some of the first companies to sell branded bottled beer to individually to consumers. And this led to a domestic uh, surge of taste for the IPA. The IPA was associated with the uh, interesting imperialist, colonialist going off in the um, pith hats and then coming back to Britain and hanging out in imperialist clubs and drinking IPA and eating curries. It was cool. So here we have a story of the state, organizations, culture, individuals, all interacting to create a new kind of product that is with us today. And the 20th century story of the IPA is no different. The 20th century story uh, involves large brewing organizations increasingly becoming dominant in the brewing scene in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and shunting out local breweries. And why is this? This is because of the same pattern of economies of scale and scope. As the national market gets more deeply integrated, large kinds of energy-intensive industries like brewing get cheaper and cheaper to do at larger and larger scales. But the, you know, very consistent lagers that are produced by these large companies that are making things for national tastes leave out a certain section of consumers who like to taste different things. And this, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, leads to there being an ecological niche that is filled by the microbrewery movement. And then because of certain kinds of cultural uh, attachments to individuality and uh, adventurousness and anti-corporate identity, these microbreweries get increasingly important for a particular set of educated uh, consumer, of yuppies. And these yuppies, like me and you, uh, probably gained a taste for IPA sometime in the 2000s, and now it's one of the most dominant forms of beer amongst the educated elites. So again, just to uh, make clear, there's an interaction between organizations, individuals, culture. The state is less involved in this story, but it's still there. Remember, in the 20th century in America, the state outlawed beer, which meant that all these breweries had to, you know, quote-unquote, shut down for a couple years. But looking at this through the lens of organizations lets us see more clearly how individuals in the state are interacting. There's a final historical reason for why we want to include organizations in this story, and that is because organizations seem to get increasingly important as 
the uh, inheritance of the Industrial Revolution gets clearer and clearer. Railways and telegraph and telephone, they all seem to produce organizations. We live now in an organizational society in which most of the things we do happen within organizations. This was not the case in the 18th century. In the 18th century, most things were done, you know, by individuals or by families. And so this story of the rise of the organization seems to be an important part of the narrative of this large story of modernity. So I think that there is also a way in which looking at this organizationally can help us see how we can change things. It's hard not to feel small looking at history, particularly 20th century history. It's hard not to feel like the individual just doesn't matter. And environmental history threatens to make that smallness even smaller. If you read your Foucault and or, uh, think that we're all just the product of the culture around us, we feel like we don't even have the ability to shape our own individual preferences, that all we are is this product of different kinds of discipline. But I think that when we look at organizations, we can see the agency of individuals, not complete agency. We're not just always free, but, but in organizations, we can see how individuals actually make decisions to get the things that they want done. And we can see how individuals are in some way deeply affected by the institutions they're embedded in. We can see how people are trained to think and act in particular ways, and also how individual decisions and personalities deeply affect the outcomes of organizational uh, decision-making. And more than that, I think that we can see the power of organizations as a way of reforming the kind of capitalism that this podcast and my work is largely a silent critique of. Organizations give people power. When you learn how to make an organization, when you learn how to manage other people, when you learn how to make meetings and agendas and cooperate and raise money, it gives people power. And the first organizations, some of the first most popular organizations in the 18th century, weren't things that were seeking to make products and sell them. They weren't organizations that sought to get people employed. They weren't organizations that were tied into this cycle of uh, resource exploitation and consumption. They were clubs. They were organizations that people went to to have fun in. And one of the reasons why organizations spread was because people were able to have fun in new ways in the city. They were able to make new kinds of highly specialized organizations that gave them outlets for hobbies that they didn't even know that they had. Organizations spread. This story began not because of capitalism, not because of profit, but because people wanted to form Latin learning clubs and wanted to uh, have a space where they could discuss science and art. They wanted to have a place where they could debate questions of political importance that they thought mattered, and organizations gave them a tool that they could use to make cooperative communities in which this was done. 
And as organizations became more and more important, and as organizational technology became more and more sophisticated, these organizations could do more and more things. And as they did more and more things, they spread and they grew, and more and more people were involved in organizations for a greater part of their working lives. Organizations slowly and slowly took over society. And as they did that, they became far less about having fun, far less about the pleasure of association, and a lot more about getting things done. And that's the world that we live in now. When you go to work, you go to work not to feel fulfilled. You go to work because your work needs you to be a particular role in the company to keep on that constant reproduction of the company's functions that's needed to keep the company alive. You know that your life is not really about that. You know that you're doing that as a means to an end. But it's hard to imagine what your life would look like if you went to work and you didn't work for someone else. But I think that if we really want to critique capitalism, if we really want to imagine a world that's different, we have to imagine not a world without organizations, not an anarchic world in which there's no sort of order at all, but a world in which our organizations are devoted to things besides profit, consumption, and production. Organizations that are devoted instead to, and this is going to sound really idealistic, devoted to individual fulfillment. And I don't think that this is too pie in the sky because that's how organizations originally got members is people trying to find a more meaningful life. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tweet about us, um, tell your friends, email me, send me a message, do all those things. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. Uh, thanks very much, and I will speak to you guys tomorrow.